This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Back in February, City of Hamilton, Hamilton City Council passed a motion that asked staff to find a way to allow residents in the City of Hamilton to become a little more engaged in what was going on prior to the provincial election. Provincial election is coming up on June the 7th, as you know. And so the idea was we're going to have a summit where some experts and some people from council and maybe some candidates for provincial office or whatever else, but they can all get together and people from the community can come and we can hash out what would be the priorities that this city would have. So if the federal or the provincial liberals win or the provincial conservatives or the provincial NDP, what, what do we want? What is this city hoping for? What are the priorities for the city? So that was February. That was passed in February. Let's find a time when we can have this summit, gather all the stakeholders and all the residents and give them an opportunity to come and have their say. Well, it's happening. That I suppose is the good news. The not so good news, this is what they're doing, what the city of Hamilton has managed to do is exactly why so many people are so unengaged. 20, I think it was 22% of people voted in the last municipal election. Well, this is a hint of why. Got a press release today at 2.26 PM, the press release arrived about this summit. So in February, council asked for this thing to be done. Today at 2.26 PM, we get a press release about the Hamilton summit that's going to happen to discuss all these priorities. When do you think this summit is going to be? Friday morning at nine o'clock. So you've had months to prepare this. We get, the public gets notified less than 48 hours. Well, about 48 hours beforehand. And they hold it on a weekday morning when anybody who has a job, anybody who works out of town, anybody who's got kids at home with no daycare will not be able to make it to this thing. It's like they're trying to not allow for engagement. They could not probably have come up with another time that would have been less available to the people of this city. Like it's, it's staggering to think that somebody at city hall or some people at city hall thought, huh, we are going to try to engage the community of Hamilton. When can we make sure that nobody can be engaged? Except of course, for the usual suspects who are the loudest screamers, who for whatever reason are able to make it to city hall for whatever meetings, anytime, day or night, any day of the week. They'll be there, so the usual voices will be heard, the ones that we already know where they stand on everything. They'll be there. Lots of them will show up, and we'll get the same thing about the same issues and about the same priorities. And so the counselors who are sitting there will hear the same lobbying efforts for the same things. But if you work for a living... Maybe if, you, maybe if you are one of these people who has a job that requires you to be at the office or be somewhere from nine till five or some other time like that, and as a result, you say, well, you know, geez, I can't actually make it to one of these things, but I'd like to have a say. Nah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We don't need to hear from you. 
You're only paying taxes and working and helping to fund this city. We don't need, we'll, we'll, we'll happily just hear from the same people over and over and over again. And you know what the issues are. We're probably going to be hearing more about bike lanes. We're probably going to hear about, take your pick, LRT and all the same stuff that we've heard over and over and over. I, I, I'm looking at this thing. It says the Hamilton Summit 2018 will include panel discussions, MPPs and nominated candidates for the upcoming provincial election, community stakeholders and residents, and give an opportunity to provide comments on these priority areas. The event is open to the general public as well as being available via live stream. Well, even better. So if you can't make it, Tune in on your computer because at work, of course, you have nothing to do at nine o'clock in the morning, the day before a weekend when you're trying to wrap stuff up. Everybody's got two or three hours to sit and watch a live stream of a city council meeting, right? What What are they thinking? Actually, they're not thinking. We know they're not thinking. There's no perfect time to have something like this because people are busy. They got kids, they got events, they've got other things. But I would believe that the worst possible time is in the middle of the workday. At least if it was at seven o'clock at night or something, you might be able to get some people who want to be engaged, but have jobs or have jobs that require working those times that they may participate. Just makes no sense. So what we're going to do, we're going to take a quick break here. This is your opportunity. Since chances are you're not going to be able to get down there. What are your priorities for the city? What do you want the city to spend its money and its time on in the next election? Roads, infrastructure, LRT, what is it? I, I, I'd love to hear from you. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Talking about this meeting that the city has called. It's been in the works since February. We heard about it at 2.30 today. Being called for 9 a.m. Friday morning. Lots of warning. So if you've got to make plans, of course, you know, those 36 hours you have roughly to be able to sort out your life gives you lots of time. This is this is the thing about this. It's a it's it's a called the Hamilton Summit. It's to be able to hash out what are our priorities with the provincial government and the city of Hamilton and the upcoming provincial election. And yet I'm just I'm I'm baffled that somehow folks at City Hall think that the average person, because they want the public to come, this is supposed to be involving the public. They want your input. So they give you less than 36 hours notice because everybody knows that every person in the public can drop everything they have and just plan their day around a meeting at City Hall. We know that's the case, right? Nobody has anything actually going on. A week or two's notice wouldn't actually be helpful if we really wanted civic engagement. No, 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 no. 36 hours is more than enough, especially when you're sleeping for about 20 of those or 25. But beyond that, we hold it on a Friday morning at 9 a.m. In the middle of the weekday, in the middle of the work week, we somehow have decided this is the perfect ideal time for those people in our city, in our city to be engaged with the decisions that are going to be made. Because again... Nobody has a job or anything like that. Nobody has to be in an office. Nobody has to get on the go train. Nobody has to go somewhere else. We all have clear schedules that we can all show up at City Hall and participate in something like this. Who are the people making these decisions? And does it strike anybody else that the timing of this and all this kind of stuff says one of two things? Either A, 
They're trying to be sure that your voices are not really heard because they don't really want to hear from you. They want to say they put out a call to hear from you, but they don't really want to hear from you. They want to bring in their experts and their politicians and blah, 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 the staff and all the rest. They don't really want to have to deal with the riffraff because that just complicates things. That's one. That's one suggestion. Or two, they've simply decided we're going to make this convenient for staff and politicians and experts, but the public, well, if they, you know, they can work around it. Either one is not exactly a good position. It doesn't argue that they really, really are concerned with civic engagement. This is the thing that we are in this city, in most cities, they are fighting to get people to be engaged. They want people to vote. Voting is at all-time lows. And I don't know how many people would normally have come out to something like this, but if you truly, truly want to draw a few of the people who aren't the usual suspects who come to every one of these, the usual gang that always have their voices heard, that are always good on social media, that are always the ones screaming the loudest because they're at City Hall and they always have a delegation. If you want to hear some different voices, this is not how you do it. Because I'm going to tell you something. I don't expect, I will be proven wrong. I could be proven wrong here. But I don't expect that we are going to hear, based on who I expect to show up at this meeting, I don't think we're going to hear a whole lot about issues reflecting people outside the downtown. I don't think we're going to hear a lot about people on the mountain. I don't think we're going to hear a lot about people in Dundas or Ancaster or Stony Creek or Flamborough. I don't. We th- These meetings, these priority meetings are going to, again, I stand to be proven wrong if this turns out to be otherwise, but I think these meetings are going to end up as as certainly from the public perspective, this is going to be a discussion about downtown issues like so many of these things seem to become. For whatever reason, the downtown folks are able, some of them, some of them, to make it out to these things when there's a call for people to be engaged. But the people who live in the outskirts, whether it's distance, whether it's work, whether it's something else, can't make it. So what do we get? We get an echo chamber of all the issues from the downtown. We don't hear anything about the people who live the rest of the city. I don't even know, do we really, based on this, based on what I expect from this, do we really want a meeting like this to determine priorities? Do we really want to have any priority for this city of Hamilton determined on a meeting that you are given 36 hours notice for and placed at a time that 99% of people can't get to? Is that how you do democracy? Is that how you come up with the things that are going to be priorities? See, that doesn't strike me as a way that you make it so you get a wide variety of views and then you can hash out some of these ideas. This to me sounds like, let's just move this thing through. Let's make it as difficult as possible to get anyone engaged. And then we can say, oh, we heard from people and we decided to go ahead with what we planned anyway, well ahead of time. As far as I'm concerned, the city would be more honest and more honorable just to say, we're not even going to do this. This is a joke. This is a joke because this is not getting the view of the public, at least not the broad public. This is going to be a very narrow, regularly heard group. And ultimately, they may say it means something, but you and I and everyone else knows this means nothing. This is a sham of a meeting. At least either give a lot of notice, put it at a time people can get to, or don't do it at all because otherwise this is a joke. And I hope they don't actually 
come up with any kind of real priorities based on this because that would be even a bigger joke. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. The swastika is a very complicated symbol. You probably are thinking, well, I don't know how complicated it is because you're thinking of it that it is the symbol of the Nazis. You see it and immediately associate it with evil, with the Holocaust, with Adolf Hitler, with Auschwitz, more recently with neo-Nazis. And those are entirely fair connections that you are making because those are legitimate connections. The, The swastika was used as a symbol for all those things. The complicated part comes because it was not originally designed for the Nazis. There wasn't a department of design in the Nazi party that had someone who drew this up to represent them. This was a symbol that was appropriate. It was stolen by Hitler. The symbol existed long before he rose to power. In fact, the name swastika comes from the word swastika. I don't know if I pronounced it right, but that's what it is, which is Sanskrit for conducive to well-being. It was seen as a positive, a happy, good luck symbol before the Nazis appropriated it. For many years, Uh, It was a good luck symbol. In Mesopotamia, it was used on coins. Navajo nations wove it into their blankets. Once upon a time, Boy Scouts actually had a badge. You could get a swastika badge back in the early 1900s, which was for fellowship. So why am I explaining all this? Well, because there is a battle going on right now on the outskirts of Hamilton in the town of Pooslinch about a street called Swastika Trail. You can understand where this thing might begin to get complicated. There is a battle going on about whether the name should be changed because of its connection, affiliation with what happened with the Nazis, or whether it should be maintained because it has historic meaning and originally it didn't mean what we've come to, many people anyway, believe what it stands for now. Randy Gazer is a resident of the street of Swastika Trail. He is one of the people who is fighting to have this name changed. He joins us now. Randy, thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, listen, thank you for having us uh uh, on your show tonight, uh, we appreciate it very much uh, in getting our message out. Well, it has. this has been something that's been going on for a while, because you can uh, take a second or two here, but I mean, it, there was a vote that was done among residents of this street some time back, and as I understand, it passed by a narrow margin to keep the name. Uh, before I ask why that wasn't okay for you, first of all, were you surprised when it actually passed to keep the name? Uh, oh. Uh, we were absolutely shocked uh, to learn that Township had accepted the uh, flawed BCA vote as, as binding and determinative uh, on the matter. W- without a question uh, and without any sort of independent view of the merits of renaming the street, which uh, we, of course, think is completely unreasonable. Okay, and I'm going to get to why you think, I mean, I think I can probably guess why you, well, let, let's go there right away first. Okay. I think it's probably pretty obvious, right, why you would think this is not a good name for a street? Yes, for all the obvious reasons, it's uh, you know it's an offensive name, and you've already alluded to the fact that it's uh, uh, basically drenched in evil uh, in this part of the world. Uh, I certainly acknowledge uh, the meanings, uh, you know, in in other parts of the world, uh, but for this part of the world, it's an offensive name, and uh, we have worked very very hard to uh, try and uh, rename the street, but uh, the street name has actually become second uh, issue to the key issue, and the key, key issue now has become the uh, one of uh, accountability and fairness. 
Okay, so you dis- now when they did this vote, and they I don't exactly know all the details, but they took a vote. You you say this was a flawed process, and that the township decided to to use for this. Uh, what was flawed about it? Well, uh, basically, uh, our claim uh, in respect to the uh, flawed vote uh, and the flawed processes used in that vote uh, relate to the unfair uh, procedures that were used to produce the vote. The process essentially was problematic from uh, start to finish, and uh, so the issue of fairness is an important one. And I can tell you this, that we, we assert in our claim that, um, that there's a couple of examples, in fact, that I'll just give you. The, we requested, uh, through the BCA, we were able to contact, uh, contact them, make a special meeting, and request a special meeting. And that meeting was held, and a vote night was held on November the 1st. And um, the notice of this vote, or the circulation of the notice of the vote, was not even handled properly in terms of the BCA's own constitution and bylaws. It was circulated to only about 45 members of the BCA, rather than the entire membership of 90-plus members. So the circulation of the notice was not inclusive of the entire BCA association. And secondly, the notice contained one-sided information in favor of retaining the name. So, so you believe the township wanted to keep the name? Well, it certainly, uh, it certainly appears that that's the case because township uh, did not exercise any sort of independent uh, judgment or reasonable judgment. Um, and we will uh, certainly uh, claim that uh, they also uh, deferred their vote entirely and follow the vote of the BCA, which was flawed. So uh, we don't feel that they, uh, they did the right thing here. And uh, you, you can't follow a vote that's flawed and expect the result to be uh, changed immediately into something that is uh, considered uh, acceptable. So flawed BCA vote uh, would equal a flawed township vote, and uh, that's something that we believe in strongly. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Swastika Trail is a street in Puslinch, and there is a fight over whether that name, which has been alternately described as a historic name representing a good luck symbol, which it originally was, or an evil name because of the Nazi and the Holocaust connection, it is, uh, it is, a, it is an interesting one. Randy Gazer is leading the charge to have the name changed. And Randy, just before I get into this again, do you know the history of how this, as you've been studying it, how this particular street got the name Swastika, how that came to be? Sure, it was actually um, part of a parcel of land that was uh, owned by a gentleman by the name of Ross Barber, and he operated a very popular spot uh, in days gone by uh, that most people would know as Barber's Beach. Initially, and originally, back in the 20s, he named it Swastika Beach. And uh, he owned a, a very large tract of land, but when the 30s came along, I think Ross uh, Barber saw the writing on the wall and certainly wasn't looking to have anything that would impede the cash flow of the business, and Ross Barber changes Swastika Beach proper to Barber's Beach, but leaves Swastika Trail in place. Some people, now you've, I'm sure you've heard this before. Some people probably are going to argue. Now, I don't know if that street had the name before you moved in, but if that name existed before you moved into the area, 
Did it bother you when you bought your house or when you moved there? Well, you know what? The issue isn't really about me personally or a handful of people on the street. I would find the name offensive whether I lived here or I didn't live here. It's an offensive name, and we would certainly, we would hope that and want nothing more than our township to come to some sort of fair resolution and one that was inclusive and represents the public's best interest on, on this particular subject. Okay, so th- I think it was this week you filed a motion in Superior Court to quash the decision that the township made to keep the name. What are you hoping the courts will do? Because I guess they have a few options, and, and even if you win, the two options I would understand might be one, force another vote, or two, force the township to change the name. What are you hoping is going to happen? You know what? It's uh, very, very hard to predict what the courts will do. For sure. Uh what would you be know, your ultimate dream, though, that the courts would hand down as a ruling? Well, we, we would uh, certainly want to... For, the first thing I'd want to say is that we had no choice but to take the legal action because we would prefer to resolve this matter with Township, but we have made multiple requests for an investigation into the voting processes of the BCA. We've asked Council to sit down on multiple occasions to work out a solution, but they have uh, they seem to be more interested to sit on their hands and uh, close their doors so um again i can't speak to what the courts will do but we w- we still would encourage uh, communication and and hope that that happens one day that that's our best objective right now is asking council uh to uh, reopen this matter revisit this matter and use the jurisdiction and authority that they have to do the right thing. So you're not necessarily saying you want the court to rule the name has to be changed. You want them to tell the council, you got to do this right, we got to have a proper vote, we got to have everybody involved, and everyone has to have an equal shot at getting involved in this. Sure, listen, it's, it's not just about the people on this street. This entire community expresses concerns over the name of the street, but we're talking here about processes and fair and, and accountability. Uh, township has an accountability uh, to its uh, electorate uh, to do the right things and to use their uh, jurisdiction and authority to make uh, decisions that are inclusive of the entire neighborhood. What would happen, and maybe you have polled the people around there and have a better idea, obviously, than I do, but what would happen if there was to be another vote, and as it turned out, the people voted to keep the name? Would that then be the end of it? I think that, uh, that we would ask township if if the best thing that it comes from this is that township is asked to redo their vote with uh, the entire world watching and that was what the a court ordered then uh we would certainly have to accept that and um and then we have fall elections coming so we'd probably revisit <laughs> the subject with our new candidate I know you're aware that there is a town in northern Ontario near Kirkland Lake. The town is called Swastika, Ontario. Have you had any contact with anybody up there? Do they? Do you know if they share any of these same concerns? I have no idea what... Uh, I mean, it would be a great question for them, but I certainly don't have any information or knowledge about what their feelings are or what their reactions would or would not be to to uh, the situation here in uh, Township of Pushness. They're... Um, do you have, are there any groups, because certainly I would think there would be some, some groups that might be interested in this. Do you have people outside the community who are involved in uh, Holocaust or other kind of, you know, these kind of things? Are there people who are jumping in now to try and help out with this? 
Yeah, there, there sure are. There, you know, there's lots of support here uh, for us, and uh, and when we get, gather that support, I suppose because they have the same concerns as us, us in terms of accountability and fairness. So uh, yes, Benet Brith has been uh, very supportive. We contacted them, and uh, they were, uh, and we asked for their support uh, because it's an important subject. And uh, yeah, so we have support from them. And uh, you know a, a number of uh, neighborhood uh, groups and associations that uh, that also uh, enjoy uh, participating uh, in this and that are upset with their township uh, that they haven't been allowed to vote or otherwise. So we, we have a, a good support team. Randy Gazer, who lives on Swastika Trail, for now. Hoping to change it eventually, but for now, uh, he is one of the people who is from there. Randy, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this tonight. Thank you. Hey, thank you for having us on the show. What a, uh, what a, I mean, it's a difficult one, right? Because there is, you, you can certainly, you can certainly, I think, understand where he's coming from, where Randy and those who are opposed to this are coming from. The name swastika obviously clearly carries connotations of things that we don't really want to be thinking about or sounding like we're supporting. And yet, on the other hand, you say, well... It's historic. It's been there forever. It's tied to the community. It was from the beach that was there. And originally swastika didn't mean this, but it is now in front of the courts. I suspect that something will come of this. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. It is time for something we do on The Scott Radley Show called... Ben's story of the day. Ben is the guy who's behind the glass. He makes the music go. He answers the phone calls. He makes sure that we are actually on the air. And every week, once a week, we gather some of the oddest things that have gone on, some of the oddest stories that have gone on or are going on or will go on. And Ben gets to choose which one is his story of the day. You are welcome to vote on it as well. What would be your story of the day? You can send me your pick at radley at 900chml.com. But here we go. Let us go through. We've got three offerings. Ben will choose which one of these becomes his story of the day. Offering number one. If you make a little trip down to the Detroit Zoo on Saturday... If you decide that you want to go and stop by and see the giraffes or see whatever else, I think it's going to be pretty cold still, but you can get a for free a very special souvenir of your trip to the Detroit Zoo. They are giving away something for free. You never get anything for free anymore. So already you're thinking, wow, I want to get something for free from the Detroit Zoo. What would it be? What is the Detroit Zoo giving its customers for free? Well, five pounds of Detroit Zoo poo, five pounds of fresh animal dung is yours for the taking as a souvenir of your visit, just to show how the zoo recycles waste. The first thousand visitors will get a, uh, an object lesson, they say, in how the zoo recycles waste. And how does the zoo recycle waste? Well, apparently by giving it away and having its customers carry it off the property. I guess that's the, it's a very clever, sneaky way. How do we recycle? Well, you're doing it for us. I, I, the one thing I got to wonder, though, is how many people who get their five pounds of fresh animal manure will get 10 minutes away from the zoo with this thing in the car and go, Ugh! and then I'll just be 
pots and plops of poo all over the highway while people dump it out because the whole car is starting to stink. Anyway, there's there's story number one. You can get five pounds of fresh animal poop if you visit the Detroit Zoo this weekend. Free. I mean, you got to pay your entry ticket. You can't just show up at the door and say, hey, give me some poo. You have to actually pay your ticket, which I guess makes it not free anymore. Actually, I wonder. Well, could you show up and just be like, hi, can I just have No, it says pounds? it's the first thousand people through the gates. You got to be through the gates. It's an exclusive. It's an exclusive offer for zoo aficionados. What you would, okay, even if you go and get this sample all the way home, what you would do with a five pound hunk of poop when you actually get home, I have no idea. Fertilizer, I guess. Although your neighbors, have you ever had a neighbor who's done the fertilizer thing? Have you ever had that? You walk out on a Saturday morning and your neighbor has had the liquid manure sprayed on their house, on their property. The whole neighborhood is a disaster. I don't know that I want my neighbors going to the Detroit Zoo on Saturday. Anyway, that's story number one. Story number two. Uh, This comes from the Department of Idiocy Department, although I'm sure that more than this person has done it. A guy in New York, 34-year-old guy, was at a chili eating contest in New York and thought, you know... I can handle my spicy foods. I've tried all the hot chilies here. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to eat an entire Carolina Reaper pepper, the hottest pepper on the planet. I'm just going to pound it down and see what happens. Well, he saw what happened. He ended up dry heaving, developed intense neck pain, and a headache that started at the back of his head and soon spread throughout the entire head, giving him what doctors describe as thunderclap headaches. That does not sound good. A thunderclap headache does not sound good. They ended up having to do an MRI on him and found that many of his brain veins or arteries or whatever in his brains had constricted or squeezed because of the pepper that he had ingested. He almost died from eating this thing. But at least he got it down. And, you know, it's not even so much the thunderclap headaches. If you down a Carolina Reaper pepper with a, what's the what's the measure of uh, the skull? Scoville. Scoville units with like 2 million or 5 million Scoville things. It eventually has to escape from you. That would be really ugly. I mean, you could maybe get a job at the Detroit Zoo after that. Anyway, that's story number two. The guy who ate the world's hottest pepper. But number three, and we've actually done this story before. I did not think there would be a second reason to call on it this year. A guy from UK who got frostbite and lost three of his toes are donating those toes to the Yukon, a hotel in the Yukon, which serves up the sour toe cocktail where you actually have a drink with a real human toe in the glass. And for you to be an official sour toe cocktail consumer, the toe must make contact with your lips as it goes down, but it has to be a real toe. This guy has given them three. They've only ever had one on site before. They have now quadrupled the number of toes they have available. They can now serve sour toe cocktails all day long. So a a British guy, I guess he gets free drinks for life. I don't know exactly, but he lost three toes and he's given them to a hotel so people can drink them in a cup. 
Ben, I'm, which of these would be your story of the day today? I'm going to have to go with the man who tried to eat a Carolina Reaper and, well, like you said, he found out what happens. It is not a pleasant thing. There is there is Ben's story of the day. I'd love to hear from you. Which one of those would you have picked? Radley at 900CHML.com. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900CHML. I don't know about you, because I don't know what era you all grew up in, but I grew up as a huge fan of Mad Magazine. Anyone else Mad Magazine fans out there? Might explain a few things about me, I grant you, but loved Don Martin, loved Sergio Aragonez, loved Al Jaffe and Mort Drucker and all these cartoonists who, some of you will remember those names, some now think I have completely lost my mind. Nonetheless, others of you grew up with Batman or Spider-Man or Superman cartoons or Archie comics or if you were really unusual, Asterisk. Remember Asterisk? That was all, I never understood that guy. Cracked Magazine, whatever. Well, here in Hamilton, we have a guy that you see regularly in the paper every day, Graham Mackay, who's a terrific editorial cartoonist, I argue the best in the country. But he is not the only guy who is doing unbelievable things in the world of cartoon drawing in the world. And cartoon, I don't even know if cartoon is the right word. Michael Walsh is one of a handful of artists creating Marvel's comic books. He's right here in Hamilton. He joins us now. Michael, thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me. Uh, you do something that tons and tons of people around the world love and read and follow, and yet I'm not sure that around here, right in your own community, that a whole lot of people know who you are. You've somehow, around here anyway, I think, maintained some sort of anonymity that is probably uh, not, you should have a lot more fame than you do. What do you think? Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I need more fame, but um, it's just, it's a quite a quiet job you sit in a home office drawing for 10 hours a day five or six days a week so um, I'm not really thinking too much about anything else but getting my work done at this point because of how busy it is but when you go to conventions or you go to other places Mm -hmm. people do know who you are the people in the comic book world you're you're a big deal for them oh yeah when I when I do uh, conventions like Toronto's Fan Expo or New York Comic Con or Emerald City in Seattle um, I have a lot of pretty pretty decent lineups for signatures, and uh, people want to talk about the work that I've been doing, and I'm doing uh, sketch commissions and stuff like that at those shows. So yeah, there's definitely a, a pretty good fan base for comics still around. You talk uh, just a moment ago. You were saying how busy you are you're going at it ten hours a day, sitting in your home office drawing. This I don't know how many people know what a cartoonist does or what the lifestyle is. Uh, and by the way, should we call you a cartoonist? Is that what you go by? Uh, yeah, cartoonist works. Okay. For sure. Uh, I don't know if people understand or know, because it sounds kind of like a fun life. You sit down, you have a coffee, you draw a little cartoon, and on you go, and you have the rest of your day. Um, ex- that's not exactly as I understand what your life is. You are you are pumping out these books. You are This is a grind, what you do. Yes. So comic books uh, operate on a monthly schedule. So every month I need to draw at least 20 pages of artwork that will then be printed a few months later and put on shelves all over the world. And right now I'm working on uh, the adaptation for Star Wars The Last Jedi, and then that, that'll be with Marvel Comics, and that'll start coming out in May. And these issues, uh, I have even less than four weeks because of how tight the deadlines are. So I'm, I'm really pumping out the work right now, trying to make sure we don't hit our print date because our publishing date gets set 
months in advance to us actually working on the book. So what is a good day for you then? If you have a really productive, great day, how much can you put out? So what I do is work in batches. So I'll, I'll do uh, pencils of the pages. So I'll rough them down on the paper. And if I'm having a good penciling day, I'll usually pencil, pencil about two pages. And if I'm having a productive inking day, I will ink over those pencils with brushes and nibs and India ink and stuff like that. And I will be able to do about three pages of inks on a productive inking day. But I like to keep them separated so that I can get more done if I'm kind of in a certain headset. Do you get, how much autonomy do you have on this? Like when, when these cartoon, when a comic book comes out and you are the guy who's behind it, has this been your creation, storyline, language, wording, pictures, everything? Has that been entirely your creation or have you been given specific instructions about what's to happen in these things? So it's kind of dependent on the project. I've had situations where I've um, done everything completely myself, came up with the uh, dialogue and the script and then the paneling. Um, and then on a, in an instance like Star Wars, where we're doing a comic based off the movie, we've got to keep most of the dialogue similar to how it was shown in the movie. But Lucasfilm has actually been really generous with us and let us be as creative as we possibly can. And we're adding new scenes that weren't depicted in the movie and we're altering perspectives that these scenes are told in that were in the movie. So if, if a scene is told in the movie from Ray's point of view, then we're going to tell it in the comic from Luke Skywalker's point of view. So we're trying to give readers an incentive to pick up the book instead of the film, but, uh, if they've already seen the film. I mean. But when you're doing something with this for a film or for uh, Marvel or something else where they are familiar characters, you have to stay, I would think, pretty close to the source. You can't venture off and suddenly change the way Spider-Man looks or Luke Skywalker looks or something. There, it, you have a model that you have to follow. Uh, yeah, for the most part, but I've been lucky in my career that um, a lot of that is dependent on editorial and what kind of direction they would like the book to take. And I've been lucky with having quite a bit of autonomy on the characters that I've worked on. Uh, when I did uh, an X-Men comic, it was technically out of uh, continuity, so we could pretty much do whatever we wanted to do with it. Huh. And then, um, yeah, a lot of the books that I've done have been kind of outside of the main line in terms of story and characters. So we've been able to do interesting and unique things, which has been really fun. So what shows up? So when, if they send you an email or a letter or talk to you on the phone, what is the outline you get? How specific? Or do they just say, we want you to get from here to here with this and this and this stop in between make it happen however you want. Is it that broad or is it very much more specific? It can be that broad. Um, so usually when you're making a comic book, there's a writer and then there's a pencil or inker and then there's a colorist. So there's a bunch of different facets to the creative team. And depending on the writer and the relationship that I have with them, I've worked um, in a really open script where I've, I'm giving no direction really except for the dialogue and then I just kind of turn that into a comic. And then I've had situations where I've gotten a script that says, you know, page one, panel one, here's what happens, and then here's the dialogue. And then so I'm taking that, and, and it's a tighter script, so I've got more direction. Everyone kind of knows what to expect. Um, and I, I enjoy both situations. It depends on how much time I have, because the more freedom I have and the more creative input that I'm putting into the project, usually the longer it's going to take for me to draw it. So um, it's really dependent on the project. Does... Does it come easy to you? I, I mean, it's not easy. It, it, it's it's unbelievably how unbelievable how talented and technical you have to be to do this. But does drawing it when you sit down does it in your mind? Does it just kind of flow? Um, 
Yes, I would say when I have the energy and I'm not overworked or overtired, it definitely does. I think that the times that I have blockages are when, you know, I've been working for two weeks straight trying to make sure I hit a deadline (laughs) and then I'm just exhausted and wiped out and that's when it doesn't come easy. So, you know, you'll see a lot of veteran artists that their advice to young people is not to pull all-nighters at the beginning (laughs) of the week, you know, give yourself some rest and, uh, Make sure you have the energy to be 100% in the mornings, you know. Can you, though, in your mind, when you sit down to draw each particular panel, mm-hmm. there are artists who can picture exactly what it's going to look like when it's done, and there are others who it is trial and error and erasing and redrawing and erasing and redrawing. Can you imagine, can you see it before it even is on the paper? Oh, yeah. I When I'm reading a script, I'm instantly visualizing how I want it to look, so... Um, usually in my first read-through of a script, I'll have a pencil handy and I'll be doing little tiny sketches um, on the gutters of the page just so that I can figure out exactly how I want to place everything down when I start putting in finer details. Um, it's, It's a lot of the work is actually done in my head before it even gets to the page. And is that always, has that always been the way or is it because you've been doing this for a while that you're now able to understand? Like when you first started doing this, was that the same way? No, I've definitely kind of uh, gotten into a rhythm of working in this industry. There was definitely a big learning curve at first because before I had started on my first project, I had only done uh, mostly short comics that were only 10 to 20 page stories. But the first published comic I ever did was six issues. So it was uh, about 120 pages in total. And that was, it's very different telling a story in 120 pages than in five. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I was kind of learning on the fly with that project. And, um, looking back, there's a lot I would have done differently. And, you know, I, you find shortcuts as you work and I, and I can work about 10 times faster as I could then. But, um, you know, you're always learning. I always strive to be learning and getting better. And I don't want to become complacent with my workflow. I, I would like to continue growing. Michael, were you always an artist? I mean, when you were a kid, were you drawing, or is this something that you grew into? No, I I was always drawing. Um, I my my mom has told the anecdote that I could draw before I could speak. Um, like I'd be finger painting Ninja Turtles, and I'd be drawing from Spider Man from comics and stuff like that. It's just always something that I've been um, drawn to. But um, <laughs> I've always enjoyed, and it's always been a hobby and something that I. I always considered a career, you know, a possible career in my life. Well, you didn't have to speak because you know what they say, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? So, yeah, I mean, that's, I uh, uh, but it's, it, was this something then that you very early on decided you wanted to be doing to be drawing cartoons or was it just something in art or had you even considered that there could possibly be a career with the talent you had? Yeah. I mean, as early as I can remember, I wanted to do either comics or animation on, on, uh, you know, Disney films, stuff like that. I think I've got some, you know, those little hockey cards that you get made when you're a kid playing on, on hockey teams. And it says, you know, a future occupation. And I wrote down uh, comic book artist, you know, so it's definitely something that I've always thought that, you know, this is what I want to do. This could be a career. And, um, and luckily I, I've been able to make that happen. How, how do you find your way into it though? Cause I, I mean, for most people I'm thinking, Michael, that if I say I want to be a cartoonist, uh, I, I'm thinking, okay, I could go do, um, you know, pictures of people, caricatures at Wonderland or whatever, but the, to find your way into where you are doing Marvel comics and stuff, how, how do you even find your way to that point? It was an interesting path. So I, uh, originally started self-publishing just short stories 
that I was writing and drawing short comics. And um, me and another uh, Canadian comic book creator, Ed Brisson, started pitching some of our own ideas for miniseries to different publishers. And uh, nothing really shook out from that. And then eventually, uh, the company that does The Walking Dead, um, they're called Image Comic Books, and they published our our first work called Comeback. And that was a six-issue, kind of a sci-fi, noir, gritty, street-level series. And um, after that, uh, so that was a creator-owned thing. That means that me and Ed own the intellectual property for it. After that, um, I was found by IDW, who's a company who was doing the X-Files comic at the time. So I started, uh, because my work on Comeback was kind of that sci-fi horror bend, they thought I'd be a good fit for X-Files. So I went to X-Files, and then uh, from X-Files, that's when Marvel found me, because they were working on a um, a street-level spy Avengers book that had a bit of a darker tone, especially in the first few issues. And uh, they thought I'd be a good artist for that, and then I was approached by the editor from there. <laughs> I mean, I had someone in here yesterday who has a very interesting job, and it's a little dark, and it's a little uh, unusual, and I asked her the same question I'm going to ask you, but yours is not that. But when people you don't know, and they say, hey, Michael, what do you do for a living? You say, I draw Marvel comics. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a really cool thing to be able to say. Is the first thing they say, well, that's really cool, or like, do they say, you mean as in like real Marvel comics? I mean, because it's such an exclusive thing to be able to say you do. Uh, yeah, it definitely is, but because of how prevalent these superheroes are in modern culture with all the films now, um, it's definitely something that people want to talk about. I have a lot of interesting airport conversations. I bet. Um, I think if you had, it had been about 10 years ago when none of these superhero movies were really popping off like they are now, people would have been like, oh yeah, that's cool, whatever. But um, people are very interested in it as an occupation, and they want to talk about superheroes and the nuances of making the comics. So, yeah, I I have a lot of fun talks with people about it. I I like talking comics or I wouldn't be in this industry. Well, and I work every day, and I'm good friends with Graham Mackay, who's the editorial cartoonist at The Spectator. I know how often people come up to him when they find out who he is and say, hey, can you draw me something? You must get that all the time. Hey, Michael, whip me up a little picture of something. (laughs) I, I do, but I think... Most of the people that are close to me know how busy I am at work <laughs> because I'm I'm pretty vocal about you know being exhausted at all times. <laughs> is there but, is there a way when you meet someone somewhere that you can do it? You have you found one that you can do in five seconds just so they have something? Or because yours are so technical, to do a Michael Walsh would take like an hour, and well, I don't have time for that. Well, what I what I usually do is uh, there's a common thing in comic books is that fans will uh, get sketched commissions. I don't have time to do that outside of conventions, but at conventions, um, you can buy a commission from me, which I usually will take about an hour to two hours to do at the show, and then I'll be able to give that original art to the person purchasing it at the show. So I'll usually um, take a certain amount of those on the first day of the show, I'll fill up my commission list, and then I'll spend the rest of the convention uh, sketching the commissions, giving them to the fans that purchase them, and then signing autographs on the books that I've done. so that's pretty much the only way to get personalized art from me at this point is to find me at a convention. Besides just, that, it's just too much, too much on the plate. Just before I let you go, uh, mm-hmm. there is something that is, I th- for most artists who are living anyway, the truism, and that is, you know, m- so many artists, they are mostly appreciated, sadly, after they're gone or when they're not producing anymore for reasons for scarcity or whatever else. Is this, though, when you're doing this, is this a career, and I'm not asking you for dollar amounts, but is this a career that is actually, that you can make a decent living at, being a cartoonist, uh, in the kind you're doing? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, 
I'm lucky enough to be one of the few people working at Marvel, and they pay uh, a very, very good living wage. Like I'm able to live comfortably. I have a house. I'm happy. I have a dog. You know, I'm I'm definitely doing really well for myself. And um, you're not the starving uh, artist that we hear about. No, definitely not. Well, I mean, that's great. That's great that they pay for this kind of thing because you are so good at it that I just when I asked the question, I was thinking, I I really hope that this is not one of those things that a guy this talented working this hard is getting paid crappy wages just because, hey, you know what? If he doesn't do it, we'll go find someone else. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, I'm lucky to be where I'm at, and I've worked hard. There is definitely a a wage discrepancy in comics. Like, if you're working at Marvel or DC, you're doing well, but if you're working at one of the smaller publishers, you might be just scraping by. So um, hopefully at one point, you know, comics becomes big enough again that uh, all of the publishers are able to kind of pay out the wages that cartoonists deserve for this medium. Michael Walsh is his name. He is uh, right here in Hamilton, drawing for Marvel Comics. If you want to read or see more or see who he is, uh, Graham uh, Graham Rockingham at The Spectator did a great piece on him that was in the paper a few days ago. Uh, It's still up. I'm sure you can find it at thespec.com. It's Michael Walsh, just like you would think. And that's an easy spelling. Go look it up. Uh, Michael, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Thanks for having me. It was fun. It's a a very cool career. I wish, it. one of the things that I wish was that I could do cartoons. I've tried for a while there. I was exceedingly mediocre at it, but never good. It's one of those things I really wish I could do. And, you know, as I say, Graham Mackay, who's at the spec, he's got a style. Michael's is an unbelievable, they're both unbelievable, different style. I wish, I think a lot of people wish, I wish I could draw. Well, we can't, and that's why the people who can are so unusual in a good way. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.